as we now look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, we're thanking you now for being our Gad. You're sovereign over all. There's absolutely nothing that takes place that escapes your sovereign hand. You're involved. You're in the details, and you are over all details. You are among us, and yet you are over us. This is the extraordinary nature of who you are and how, how it is that you reveal yourself. And the most significant way you've revealed yourself, of course, was at the cross of Jesus Christ. Coming to this world sinful by nature, but Jesus Christ went to that cross to die in our place for our sins. We give you continual praise because of that, Father. Now, Father, we are scattered right now all throughout this region and beyond. But Father, you're with us no matter where we are. You see the needs of that particular heart and that particular home, the burdens on the shoulders of people right now that are weighed down by, it might be job matters, it might be health matters, it might be family matters, most significantly, spiritual matters. You close the gap, though we were distant from you, and Jesus died for us. And the result now is there's a withness, a oneness that comes in our relationship with you through Jesus. We want that, Father, to be felt by each and every one that's processing now these verses this morning. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here in these various settings throughout this broad region to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Dr. Ben Carson is an extraordinary man. He's the 17th United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development since he took office in 2017. He was the Director of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins from 1984 until his retirement in 2013. Most significantly, he is known internationally as uh, having separated conjoined twins joined at the back of the head. In that remarkable book that he penned, Gifted Hands, he penned these words. I became acutely aware of an unusual ability, a divine gift, I believe, of extraordinary eye-hand coordination. It's my belief that God gives us all gifts, special abilities that we have the privilege of developing in order to help, help us serve him and humanity. And the gift of eye and hand coordination has been an invaluable asset to me in surgery. This gift goes beyond eye-hand coordination, in fact. 
encompassing the ability to understand physical relationships, to think in three dimensions. Good surgeons must understand the consequences of each action. But they are often not able to see what is happening, to see on the other side of the area in which the area they're actually working. What I want you to see here is the eye-hand coordination of God at work in this passage. It's more than ironic, isn't it, that a physician has penned these thoughts, Luke. You're going to see the usage, the metaphor of the hand of God embedded in these verses. And at the very end, the hand of Barnabas and Saul returning certain gifts to Jerusalem. So what I want to do with you this morning is to together look very carefully at this whole matter of the hand of God at work, even when it might not seem immediately apparent to you or to me. There is this invisible hand of God who, with perfect eye-hand coordination, is orchestrating both the micro and macro events of life simultaneously. What I want to do is to draw three significant means by which the hand of God is working through what we see in this passage this morning. The first comes out of verse 19 down through verse 21. We're going to put it this way to begin with, that in the midst of trying times, the hand of the Lord is at work. First of all, through the evangelistic efforts that are taking place. Now, it might not be immediately apparent, but even in this time period of social distancing, I'm struck by the emails that come in of people that have been impacted evangelistically through what is taking place. Now, notice how this begins in chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now notice they are scattered. They have been gathered. There was security in the numbers collectively in Jerusalem. But Saul of Tarsus, we saw it in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, scattered those who were gathered together. But in the process, while the evil one is attempting to hinder the work of God, in reality, the hand of God was at work, and he was helping the work of God, because the individuals then took the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, and now into the uttermost parts. And so now, what was meant as a hindrance against the Lord's hand, was in reality a help found within the working of the Lord's hand. And those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, notice where they go. You might want to click on a map and look very carefully at where they went. And what you're going to see is that they're in Phoenicia, Cyprus. Antioch. There were strong Jewish population 
groups gathered together in those three settings. You look at the map, and the third of the three, Antioch, look carefully at how strategic that is. Roughly 300 miles from Jerusalem, it would serve as the launching pad by which the gospel of Jesus Christ would be sent outward into regions such as we know as Europe. And so they've gathered together. And as they've gathered together in that setting, I want you to see how that region looks today. If you click on as well a picture, it's a, it's a, a remarkable thing, this setting. Antaya, that setting of today, is a region by which we can see the archaeological remains of some of what is being described here in these verses. Antia. And we are told here at this point, within that unique setting, third in size only in terms of cosmopolitan cultural advantages to Rome as well as Alexandria, Egypt, this is where uh, now the gospel is penetrating. Notice that it reads here in verse 19, at this point, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. In verse 20, you nor I are given names, are we? There isn't one pivotal person who, with a recognizable name, stands out here in what's described. But here in Antioch, on the Orentes, and what was then Syria, now the southern tip of Turkey, with about a half a million people present, cosmopolitan nature, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, those embedded in the Greek culture, you see, and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. What I want you again emphasize in your studies here in verse 20, no names are mentioned. They are anonymous to you and me, but they are known to our Lord God. And God is utilizing them for his purposes and for his glory. When Anwar Sadat of Egypt was assassinated, they provided a temporal burial place beside Egypt's unknown soldier for Sadat. Now, I was struck when I read about that, when it first happened, that Egypt's best-known soldier would be buried beside Egypt's unknown soldier. But then I penned these thoughts, that in the kingdom of God, there are countless unknown soldiers, you see. They march right beside the well-known soldier in Jesus Christ, each of whom does his part, her part, and the parts they have are significant. But the emphasis is not upon achieving glory for our name. The emphasis is upon spreading the glory of Christ's name. This is what's happening here. So on one hand, they're not named. But on the other hand, at the end of verse 20, Christ is named. So the nameless 
are proclaiming the glory of the one named who died for their sins and on the third day rose from the grave, Jesus Christ. What do you make of that? When you look at that, you ponder the significance of that. You're now up to verse 21. And notice, furthermore, the evangelistic efforts here, how human responsibility is being combined with divine sovereignty. They're doing their part, but who with eye-hand coordination is making all of this come together? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord... was with them. There's something extraordinary whenever you and I do a thorough study of the hand of the Lord in God's word. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And as Carson puts it, and the gift of eye-hand coordination has been an invaluable asset in surgery. And now we see the surgical process unfolding as God is at work, and we see here the hand of the Lord was with them. What's the result of all this? A great number who believed turned to the Lord. The Greek word here, epistrepho, is a favorite word of Luke. He uses it periodically throughout Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 3, you and I, if we were able to turn back to that, would find that in verse 19, right in the midst of the remarkable movements of the Holy Spirit when the people were gathered, we're told there was this statement, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So here again now, we find in Acts chapter 9, for example, in verse 35, something similar. There's this tremendous emphasis upon the fact that people are heading in a certain direction away from God. But God in his sovereign grace woos the heart, woos the individual through the responsible efforts of God's people and by his sovereign purposes, takes his hand, so to speak, metaphorically, and that life is being turned around back to him. Now maybe as you're watching, as you're observing, as you're processing what's here, you've been trying all through the course of your life thus far to keep a tight grip upon your life upon others' lives, upon your work, upon your health, upon your relationships. But what we have to bear in mind is that the most significant grip is the sovereign grip. Not of the human hand, but of the divine hand, who has perfect eye-hand coordination to be able to achieve what you nor I are possibly able to achieve. And we're secure within that hand. And so while the evangelistic efforts demonstrate human responsibility, as you saw in verse 20, they need to be connected now to the sovereign authority that's found in verse 21, 
where the hand of the Lord is orchestrating through the perfect eye-hand coordination, the purposes of the triune God, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned. Epistrapho used not once, not twice, but now a third time in the book of Acts to, not to themselves, not to their desires, turn to the Lord. Now, you're going to have to examine very carefully now, where do I need to release my grip and allow God's grip to replace my grip and allow God's hand to replace my hand because he has the eye-hand coordination and understands the past, present, and the future and understands our future better than we understand our past in order to be able to achieve his purposes for his glory all by the working of his hand. Are you able to accept that? What is it you need to release into his hand this morning? You see, in the midst of trying times, the hand of the Lord is at work, first of all, through the evangelistic efforts that are taking place. And we see it happening even now with technology and how God is penetrating regions and penetrating hearts that in prior times would probably not be taking place. It's his eye-hand coordination involved in the coronavirus matter, you know. But now, I want you to see that there's a second significant means by which the hand of the Lord is at work. The number two, in the midst of trying times, the hand of the Lord is at work here. Not only through the evangelistic efforts taking place in 19 through 21, but also through the sound teaching being provided in 22 down through verse, down through verse 26. So there they are. They're in Antia, as we put it in southern Turkey today. Antioch, as it was known, northern tip of Syria back then. And there in verse 22, there's this report. There's this report that once again is coming to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They're saying, my goodness, not again. I mean, we were getting a report out of Samaria. Philip was involved, and their ears perked up. Now, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts, Acts 1a continues to unfold strategically, but surely. And now Jerusalem again in the gathered state is pottering what's taking place in the scattered state. What are they going to do? They want to be able to authenticate what's taking place here. And so they're going to have to get eyes and ears in that particular setting known as Antioch, cosmopolitan, highly significant, the place to be. And so who do they send? They send Barnabas. Now, we've bumped into Barnabas, haven't we? In Acts 4, verses 13, 36 and 37, when there was a need for distribution of wealth for the sake of meeting needs, Barnabas came forward. And furthermore, in Acts 9, verses 26 and 27, when Saul of Tarsus was still suspect by the apostles because of his reputation for persecuting the church, Barnabas stepped forward, took a genuine interest in Barnabas, in Saul, and demonstrated, demonstrated grace when others were highly skeptical. 
Are you bringing grace to an era of skepticism? Are you finding a way to be a Barnabas to those that are hurting? Barnabas stepped in. And because he had developed such a strong reputation, his name literally means son of encouragement, they sent him off 300 miles to Antioch, you see. Respected enough that he would be their man. Well, you're up to verse 23 at this point, aren't you? And when you get to verse 23, you and I are told, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Paul is right there. We want to be able to understand, once again, the grace of God. Never let that become elusive in your thought processes. Simply, ground-level talk, it's getting what you don't deserve. We come to this world, you see, sinful by nature, separated from God. We have our own definition of what we deserve. But then God breaks in through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You and I take a good, hard look at the sinless one who died for the sinful ones. That he would die for you, that he would die for me, and you say to yourself, I don't deserve this. You see, salvation involves getting what we don't deserve. And when you look at the cross, you look at the sinless one through the backdrop of sinful context. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of a friend who went to purchase a gem, went to a jeweler. The jeweler knew just how to display the merchandise. Stopped under a bright light, slid a piece of black velvet onto the black counter, took the gems from the case, laid them one by one on the velvet, and then Swindoll writes, without that black backdrop, he couldn't have seen the cut, the hues, the beauty of each gem. Now what we need to do is to be able to see grace with a black backdrop in mind. We've got to be able to see here the cross of Jesus Christ, the cut, the hue, the beauty of it all. <coughs> that the sinless one would die for the sinful ones. And the eye-hand coordination you see here of the triune God at work at this point is such that grace is now prevalent in a setting that the average person in Jerusalem would not have fully anticipated nor even expected because Antioch, in their estimation, would have had a bad reputation. But then again, they can trust Barnabas. So when he came and saw the grace of God, now we see the beauty of all of this. He's glad. He's impacted. So what does he do? He gets his bearings and begins to exhort them, challenge them, encourage them. To do what? To remain faithful. To remain faithful, you see, in the Lord. To the Lord. With steadfast purpose. 
that there's a purpose to life, that God has a design for you and a design for me. And while the design in this era of coronavirus might be such that you think that the design is skewed, understand very carefully that God uses multitude of colors, a collage, if you will, pulls all this together to produce something of a masterpiece. That there is a picture here unfolding that you and I cannot fully understand or appreciate right now because the paintbrush is still applying paint to the canvas of life, your life, my life. We might not see at this moment the full design, but there's a splash of color here and a splash of color there, and it's all part of sovereign grace at work on the canvas of our lives. He's exhorting them. There's a purpose to all this. There's a ministry that's unfolding here. You're up now to what comes next. Because in verse 24, in verse 24, we're told he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And as you study the book of Acts, Mark again and again and again, statements with regard to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit. This was significant to the physician Luke as he penned his thoughts. It's significant for you and me in this day and era. What is it that we are filled with at this time? Anxiety? Frustration? Or do you take a step back and examine the inner core of your being and say, I desperately want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And allow the Holy Spirit to reign from within, even though it might seem a little bit out of sync from without. Is that what's happening in your life this morning? What are you filled with? Well, again, a great many people were added to the Lord. To the Lord. This is an extraordinarily beautiful thing that's unfolding in front of you and me. And so in verse 25... Luke tells us, so Barnabas went to Tarsus. It's about 100 miles further away. He's been hard at work. He's got his sleeves rolled up. But look at who he's looking for. The one who is responsible to get them out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. The one responsible to get them into Antioch, this one named Saul, rough estimates, perhaps seven to eight years have gone by. What's he been doing? Well, he has obviously been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, raising eyebrows that the persecutor is now the proclaimer. And so we get to verse 26, and we're told that when he had found him, in other words, when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. Antioch, again, as it's known today. Look what comes next. This is not a hit-and-run visit. For a whole year, a whole year, they met with the church, the ecclesia, you see, and taught. They taught a great many people that's why this is our, our second 
major means. It's through the sound teaching being provided. In other words, once grace is being observed, teaching needs to be applied. And application is not what it's all about. And so they taught this great many people, and so to such an extent was the impact and the reputation of what was occurring in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time we know of in history followers of Jesus Christ were known as and described as Christians right here. And it pervades to this very day. Now when you and I, if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, want to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got to find strategic ways to be able to challenge people to think carefully, do they belong to Jesus or do they not? My recommendation is not to simply ask a person, are you a Christian? Because people fail to distinguish between what we may call Christianity and Christendom. Christendom is the cultural influence of Christianity. But Christianity bears the name of Christ upon the heart, the soul. Involves transforming grace when we look at the black drop of our lives and then we see the cut, the hue, the beauty of Jesus Christ on that cross. The gem of life. And so we become known as Christians when we put our faith exclusively, not in our works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sins. The word Christian comes from the idea of belonging to a particular party of. There were the Herodians. There were others that had the I-A-N at the end. But here we find a Christian. There is an anecdote from a prior era. A soldier was brought before Alexander the Great, facing charges of going AWOL. And at the end of a trial, the conqueror said to the soldier, what's your name? We're told that the soldier responded, my name is Alexander. A second question. What is your name? The response, my name is Alexander. A third question, what is your name? Response, my name is Alexander. To which the emperor then added, soldier, either change your conduct or change your name. Now, notice very carefully here that while there were those in Antioch who go nameless, when you're talking about Christ, we're talking about the one who is to be named. And so now, they were the first who were known, who described, who were called Christians, and they did not come up with that name for themselves, did they? No, this was the name that was given to them by the pundits within that region. So now what do we see here? The hand of God is at work, trying times. Number one, through the evangelistic efforts that are taking place. You saw it in 19 through 21. Number two, through the sound teaching being provided. 
beginning in verse 22, down through verse 26. But now you're up to verses 27 through 30, where thirdly, notice with me, it's through the financial relief going forth. These were hard times. Not only were people scattered relationally, but there the gathered people were hurting financially, materially, physically. They, in fact, were without food. In verse 27, now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is a 300-mile trek, you see. One of them, his name was Agabus. He stood up, typically in synagogues and the like. That's what would take place when somebody would have something to say prophetically. And so there was tremendous respect for the individual, particularly when he had come all this ways. They would be at the forefront of wanting to hear what's, what's new back in the homeland, what's new back in the place from which we came. Agabus stands up. And we're told, foretold by the Spirit, that there would be a great famine that would take place over all the world. And then there's this, there's this added historical footnote. It took place in the, days, in the days of Claudius. If you were to click on the notes, you would see a picture of, of the emperor Claudius from that time period. He reigned from 41 to 54 AD. And his reign was cut short when his, his wife poisoned him with mushrooms, believe it or not. So when you order your pizza of cheese, sausage, and mushrooms, I'd say, go light on the mushrooms, okay? Well, now, there's Claudius. There was Claudius. There goes Claudius. But in 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to do what? To send relief. To send relief where? To the brothers. The brothers back in Judea. And now the gospel, which has gone from the Jews to the Gentiles. Here we find that financial relief is coming from the Gentiles back to the Jews. Do you see the rhythms of life gathered and scattered, and the scattered then are concerned for the gathered? When Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, started each new year by writing a check to the order of the Hebrew Christian testimony to Israel in London, he marked it to the Jew first. And when David Barron, scholar, Jewish scholar, received the gift, he immediately reciprocated and sent his own personal gift to the China Inland Mission with notation and also to the Greek. What you and I see here is the principle of reciprocity. I can say it, reciprocity. It's the principle of taking and giving, which is what Paul is teaching and others are teaching at this point. In other words, what we receive from God, we find a way to return to God. Reciprocal giving. It has a powerful impact. The culture takes note when God's people are looking out for one another. You heard earlier the announcement of checking out the needs for love and action. Do it. We want to be able to meet the needs of other people. 
for God's glory. Finds a way of ministering to those who might be hurting in this particular time. But what I want you to see here is something of high significance. We're in verse 30. Having pulled together the financial giving aspect of meeting the needs, the people there in Antioch did what? They sent it to the elders. Mark the phrase, by the hand. By the hand of Barnabas, whose name meant son of encouragement. And Saul, Barnabas, who at an earlier stage in the book of Acts had given of his wealth to meet needs in Jerusalem, thus giving a sense of authenticity and credibility. Now here in Antioch, they're sending Saul with Barnabas. Saul, the one who is the reason behind the people being scattered because of persecution. Now with Barnabas, Saul is being used by God, and together he returns to the area in which he had persecuted people, but this time providing relief for people. There's the rhythms of life. There's the hand of God upon life. There's the sovereign purposes of our Lord. Thus Ben Carson's words. I became acutely aware of an unusual ability, a divine gift, extraordinary eye-hand coordination. It's my belief that God gives us all gifts, special abilities that we have the privilege of developing to help us serve human humanity. And the gift of eye and hand coordination has been an invaluable asset in surgery. And here's your sovereign God at work. Even in the midst of coronavirus, COVID-19, the perfect eye-hand coordination, surgically working out his strategies evangelistically, doctrinally, financially, pulling it all together, the church scattered, the church gathered, scattered to be regathered, all in such a way that brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Let me close in prayer. And so, Father, we're thanking you now for being our God. And when life seems to be out of hand, the triune God, with perfect eye-hand coordination, orchestrates the events of life in such a way that brings glory to your name and good to our lives. You're still at work on this canvas of life. You're painting. You're developing. You're creating. And what an extraordinary painting this is going to be when the brush is finally set down. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. We entrust our lives into your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.